Hey, today we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and you can turn there with me in your Bible right now. If you happen to have a Bible or using the church app, that's fine too. But you'll find 1 Corinthians after the book of John, and then Acts and Romans, then 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, just turn back a little bit in your Bible. We're kind of going through a market-up study of the Scriptures where we are looking passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph at the whole of 1 Corinthians, trying to understand it in context. And today, while we come to a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that's, should I say, uh, peculiar, You're going to listen to this passage in a few moments, and you're going to say, what the, what what is going on here? Or that, like, that's strange. What is he talking about? And, like, what am I to do with that passage? Um, It's a challenging one. (laughs) I'll put it that way. (laughs) I I want you to know um, at the front end, that Carnegie Free is not implementing a new head covering for women policy today. <laughs> Amen, I heard. <laughs> and I can be quite sure that if we did, many of you would not be back here next Sunday. Okay, so we're, we're not doing that. But I also want you to know that uh, whenever I stand up here to teach, I, like, I don't just stand up here and like, read the Bible a few times and then think about what I'm going to say and then just kind of riff with you. I study. I study deeply. And multiple, multiple hours. Any time before I come up here to teach and develop an outline for a message. Because you deserve that. Like, you deserve that in hearing the Scriptures. And I think that's what I owe to myself as well as a person of integrity, seeking to understand what the Scriptures say from almost 2,000 years ago. And most importantly, I owe that not to you, not to me, but I owe it to God, who is the authority over my life, and His Scriptures are therefore the authority over my life. And uh, so I do that deep study. And for this passage particularly, I had to do a little deeper study. Um, I went back uh, this past week to some notes from seminary, and I reread over the past several weeks a number of different commentaries on 1 Corinthians that I've read in the past, but, but, but just seeking to get my chops up again for this very difficult passage, it was just a lot of study and a different level over the past several weeks to understand what exactly Paul's getting at here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. I appreciate what uh, Professor Craig Blomberg at Denver Seminary said in his New International Version uh, commentary on the New Testament. He was one of my professors in seminary, and he says this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the entire New Testament. So if you're a newcomer, please come back next Sunday. Like, ironically, hearing that from Dr. Craig Blomberg helped me last week as my head was spinning and trying to understand it all. But let me set the context. Though This is the Apostle Paul. And Paul has had this conversion experience with Christ. 
He was raised as a Jewish man who is trained under the leading rabbi of the day. And he's kind of unique in that he also speaks Greek. And he was raised in Greek culture as well. And he's kind of like bicultural between Jewish and Greek culture. And he's simultaneously a Roman citizen. And he is just an absolutely brilliant trilingual man. I I mean, one of the smartest men you'd ever encounter. And early on, he's a Christian hunter. He hates Christians, and he even takes participation in the murder of Christians. But then he has this experience in which Jesus appears to him, and he gets to experience the resurrection of Christ, as did the other apostles. And after experiencing the resurrection of Christ, he comes to believe that the very one that he was persecuting is actually Lord and God. And so he comes to believe that Jesus Christ died for him, but not only him, died for the entire world, and then he backed up his death for us by rising physically, bodily from the grave, such that we don't believe in a myth or a fairy tale. We believe in something that's rooted deeply in history. And so all of that to say, this is the Apostle Paul who had gigantic influence. It is not an over-exaggeration at all to say he is the most influential Christian in all of history. Okay, After Jesus, it's the Apostle Paul who is planting most of the churches in the Mediterranean world, others too, but him more than anyone else, writing most of the New Testament. He is extraordinarily influential. And so when he speaks, when the Apostle Paul speaks, we listen. And he says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to instruct women to wear head coverings when they come to church. Now it's our job, if we believe in the authority and the reliability of the Bible, to understand why he instructed that, and it's our job to understand why that doesn't apply to us today, even as we respect and come under, submit to the authority and the reliability of the Bible. Needless to say, you're going to have to put on your thinking caps for this one. See what I did there? Take your time. Okay, you got it? Okay, good. All right. 1 Corinthians 11. Stop rolling your eyes at me. (laughs) Listen, we're going to have to laugh together today, okay? We're going to have to laugh together. Please join me. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 11, verses uh, 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me and everything. And for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Speaking of the original couple there. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head, 
because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They're interdependent with each other. For as a woman came from man, so also a man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, did you get all that? Yep, I'm processing it. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, this is challenging. This is peculiar. So we should pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We confess to you a level of ignorance in us. We confess to you that your word is true and it is living and active. But also there's some things in it that are difficult for us to understand. And so we ask God that you would quicken our minds today. That you would help us to think and process together that you would open our hearts today to the truth of your word, and perhaps we might even apply some of this to our lives. We give ourselves to you now, and we choose to be in submission under the authority of your word, even as we listen to it together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you don't remember anything else that I say to, to you this morning, I'm begging you to remember this. I'm begging you, if you're taking notes, to write this down. This is critical for you in your reading of the Bible. It's critical as you coach and disciple your kids or your grandkids. It's critical to understand in the Bible. Here it is. To correctly understand and apply the Bible, we must distinguish between timeless truths and time-bound regulations. Say that again. To correctly understand and apply the Bible to our lives, it is critical for us to distinguish between timeless truths or universal truths for all people at all times, culturally transcendent truths for all cultures, and time bound regulations that might be given to a specific culture at a specific time for a specific reason. You following? Friends, if you don't understand that principle, let me tell you what will happen. You will start to think of the Bible as random and arbitrary, and it regularly won't make sense to you, and you will put it down. Like the stakes are that high. If you don't understand that principle and you read the Old Testament, here's what will happen. You will start to get very rigid and legalistic about Sabbath restrictions. If you don't understand that principle, you'll start to get legalistic about pork and shellfish and lots of other foods as well. If you don't understand that principle, you'll have to completely change your wardrobe and throw away all pieces of clothing that might include two different kinds of material in them, okay? If you don't understand that principle and you happen to be a farmer, 
then what you'll do by default each and every year is you'll leave the edges of your fields unharvested so that at the end of the harvest, the poor and single parents and orphans can walk through the edges of the field and gain food from your harvest, even if it's very inconvenient for you to do so with a combine. And even if that happens to be feed corn for cows, okay? You still leave it because you've misunderstood the principle that I just noted there. You see, if if we don't understand this principle, though, that was noted there, you will regularly misinterpret the scriptures and you'll apply things that are intended to be time-bound restrictions, culturally-based restrictions to your life here and now, and it'll feel really random, really arbitrary, really confusing, and then you'll return to church next week wearing head bonnets. Okay, a very updated wardrobe. So let's read that statement together from the screen so that we all get it in us as it's critical for basic Bible interpretation. Please join me. To correctly understand and apply the Bible, we must distinguish between timeless truths. Okay, we got to do that. We got to distinguish between timeless truths and time-bound restrictions. Now, another very helpful principle for biblical interpretation is this. Well, when you come to a difficult passage that's kind of fuzzy and hard to understand, it's helpful to ask, what is the question that this author is trying to answer? Okay? What's the issue at hand that he is dealing with that he's trying to answer in context And once I get that answered, I'll be able to understand this passage much better. And the question that Paul's addressing with the Corinthians is about this. It's about how should a woman pray or prophesy inside the public church gathering? How should a woman pray or prophesy inside the public church gathering? Here it is in verse 4 and 5. Says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Exact same language here for men and women. Next line. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, some people have said over the centuries that a woman cannot pray or prophesy in a public church gathering, but that's not Paul's issue at all, is it? He simply assumes here that men and women are both praying and prophesying publicly in the church gathering based on their giftedness and under the authority of elders and lead pastor. He's assuming that. That issue for the Apostle Paul has already been settled back in Acts chapter 2 when in fulfillment of the prophecies from the, the prophet Joel, your sons and daughters will prophesy, okay? In Acts chapter 2, well, when the church is born at Pentecost, that is exactly what happens. Men and women together prophesying to the goodness of God, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ together there at Acts chapter 2. And then as you continue on reading through the book of Acts, you see example after example of that, of different women and men praying and teaching and prophesying based on their giftedness under the authority of God and God's anointed and um, designated leadership. 
So that's not the issue, though, that Paul is answering. The issue that Paul is addressing is when a woman prays or prophesies publicly as a matter of convenience, can she do so without a veil on her head? That's his question. As a matter of convenience, can she just remove the veil from her head, come to church, and pray or prophesy if she's given that opportunity to do so in the service? Now, I'm not positive about all of these explanations of this passage, but I'm going to give my best possible explanation based on lots of commentaries that I've read and studied this passage over the years as well. And what we're going to do is divide this into time-based restrictions and timeless truths. And we'll look at four of them. Try to stick with me. Here's the first time-bound regulation, time-bound restriction. It goes like this. Women would wear head coverings back then, according to the Apostle Paul, to deflect glory and deflect sexual attraction. There is a certain glory, a certain attractiveness to a woman's hair, is there not? And the Apostle Paul is simply acknowledging that here. In fact, back then, a shaved head in the first century world generally meant that she was caught in a sexual trespass. She was caught in adultery. And shame was very heavy in the first century. And if a woman was caught in a sexual trespass, frequently the punishment included shaving her head. And so in the Middle East, a woman caught loses her hair and therefore loses her glory. Part of her glory was her long hair. Likewise in that culture, in many Eastern cultures still today, to appear publicly without a head covering was a non-starter. A woman would never do that. And that's true in many Eastern cultures around the world. In fact, I was having a conversation with a, a wonderful Ukrainian woman here in our church who came up to me after the service, and she said of the Ukrainian church that she used to attend back in Ukraine, that was the expectation, that she would wear a head covering and a long dress. Different customs in different cultures. Back in the first century world, both in Jewish culture and in Greek culture, to come into a public setting without your head covered as a woman was to signal, I am available. In fact, I am sexually available. It would be much the same as in our culture, a man or woman saying before they go out on the town to the bars downtown, for example, I'm going to take off my wedding ring first. And then I'll go downtown and I'm going to have different conversations with people of the opposite sex. And as they see my hand, they will see that I am not spoken for. Same kind of thing. That's the mean of the head covering back then. They were time-based regulations for the Corinthians. They were customs of sorts that held sexual and religious meaning in that culture. But do head coverings hold any sexual or religious meaning in our culture? Somebody say no. No, they don't. They don't. And so that's not our custom, so we don't follow that. It's a time-based custom specific to that culture. Now, Paul would say something like this. If you were to go visit a church in the Middle East, and there's plenty of churches in the Middle East, you put on a veil because that's the custom there. It's very much in keeping with what he said in earlier chapters. I am all things to all people in order that by all means I might win some. Now, what's the timeless truth here? The timeless truth here, if you're following along your outline, is women dress modestly. 
And men as well would dress modestly to deflect glory from themselves and also to deflect sexual attraction. I pray you have faith to hear what I'm about to say. The cross-cultural timeless principle is that no matter what culture you live in, we are wise to avoid dressing in such a way that attracts lust from the opposite sex. That's not a very popular statement these days, I know. But that's what Paul's saying here. Like women would be wise to say, as I go into the church setting, is this clothing too tight? Is this going to detract glory from God? Is it going to attract sexual lust from others? Men likewise well, would ask those same kinds of questions, especially in the worship setting. Am I doing anything in my dress that detracts from the glory of God and the modesty that is intended as our eyes are completely focused on the cross. I heard one amen. But that is what Paul is getting at. That would be the timeless principle or the timeless truth behind what he's saying. Here's another time-bound restriction behind what he's saying. Women would wear head coverings, and men do not wear head coverings for this purpose, Paul says, to distinguish between the genders. Stick with me here. In Greek and Hebrew culture, in, in public worship settings, both men and women would wear head coverings when they came in for worship. It was a sign amongst both men and women that we are under the authority of God in the worship setting. And still today, what do Jews wear when they go into synagogue? Jewish men, what do they wear on their head? A yarmulke, that's right. They wear a yarmulke on their head to say, I am under authority. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving some distinction from those cultures while also giving some continuity. And as he does that, he's distinguishing between the genders. And this was critical to do because the Greek audience in the first, culture, first century world was starting to be influenced by Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this belief that you kind of reach this higher level of spiritual knowledge, higher spiritual experience and enlightenment by separating oneself from your body. And the idea is the spirit is good and the body is bad in Gnostic thinking. And there was some Gnostic thinking though that even said, as you reach enlightenment, the highest form of enlightenment will, will, will include being neither male nor female being a neutered kind of person of some kind. That was a high order of spiritual thinking in Gnostic thought, to which the Apostle Paul says, no, God made you male and God made you female, and these are beautiful things that we can affirm. And so the cross-cultural principle, the timeless principle would be something like this. Men and women are different and they're complementary. So God creates men and women, different and complementary. And God likewise redeems men and women, different and complementary. Now this doesn't mean that, that like men have to fit in some like really rigid macho box, okay? That's a, that's a popular idea coming from our culture today that men, to be a real man, you have to fit in this really rigid macho box and you certainly shouldn't be wearing a salmon-colored polo while you preach, my son said it was pink. I said, no, I'm not going there. It's salmon, okay? 
yeah. I'm confident enough on my masculinity I can do such things. All right, but I, you don't have to fit in a rigid masculine box. And it doesn't mean for women that you have to fit in this perfectly rigid feminine box. Like we really do a disservice to men and women. We say this is what a man is and this is what a woman is. And, and, and like you have to fit in this box that, that is so rigid that, that is oftentimes called constraining. That, that's not what Paul is getting at here. What he's getting at is men and women are equally made in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't even mean that like a, a man can't ever have long hair. Nor does it mean that a woman can't ever have a short cropped bob cut or something or, or short cropped hair. It's not that. What, what he's saying is don't intentionally, hear me now, don't intentionally blur the lines between the sexes so that they cannot be differentiated. That's what he's saying. Because there's inherent goodness to God creating you as a male. And there's an inherent goodness to God creating you as a female. And believe it or not, that will continue into eternity. Okay? Now all of this to say, just as a pastor... Not so much as a teacher, just as a pastor. If you struggle with gender dysphoria today, you're safe here. I, I pray to God that you would be safe here. And you could struggle here. Because the simple fact is, every single one of us will struggle with some kind of dysphoria related to our body. Okay, I, I've been a stutterer my whole life. You all know my story. Don't stutter that much anymore, but I'll tell you, as a kid and as a young man, I hated my larynx. I had a dysphoria with my larynx. But the key in the Christian life is learning how to live faithfully inside of the way God made you. Okay, to like to struggle and to persevere inside the way God made you in community. Because God says that He doesn't make mistakes. And the way that he made you as male or female is good, and we are to persevere inside of that, even if some might struggle with it. And, and frankly, like, if you struggle with it, that is not new. Okay, that some did back then in the first century, too. And when Jesus refers to eunuchs, those are oftentimes people who are struggling well with that very thing. But it's a matter of learning to struggle inside of who God has made you to be. Okay, next time-bound restriction goes like this. Gifted women are welcome to pray and teach in the public worship setting under authority. And the sign of authority in that day that Paul is instructing them here is head coverings. So head covering, what would be the sign, a symbol on the head of a woman that says, I am one under authority. Now, what does the word prophecy mean? The word prophecy means to exhort, to teach, to witness, to preach, to do what I'm doing right now. And Paul says, when a man, preach, when a man prays or prophecies, and when a woman prays or prophecies, it's a spiritual gift, and there's no indication in any of the New Testament passages that deal with spiritual gifts that any of them are given by gender. They are simply given by God's providence. And so we see at Pentecost and through ladies like Anna and Philip's four daughters and Priscilla and many other examples in Scripture of women who are teaching in the Scriptures. 
And Paul assumes that here in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5. He simply says that when a woman does, she should do so with the symbol that I am under authority. Now there are some though that have object, objected. Then explain to me, Adrian, what is going on over in 1 Corinthians 14? When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to speak in church, she must be silent. Like, what's that about? Isn't that in contradiction to what's happening here in chapter 11? No, it isn't. Here's why. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is talking about order in the church. And what was happening in the church is women were uneducated by and large, far less educated than men. And so the preacher would be preaching and the woman would oftentimes, in a much more expressive culture than ours, like gently shout out, what does he mean? What is he talking, like you might be thinking about that, to, about that today. What does he mean? What's he talking about? Right? And, and so they would be talking to each other during the sermon, explain to me what he means. Talking to their husband, what, what is he talking about here? And as they did so, what else were they doing? Distracting others interrupting the sermon. And so the issue there in chapter 14 is one of order, and Paul explicitly answers that in the very next verse in chapter 14. He, he says, women, ask your husbands at home. <laughs> in other words, don't ask at the church and distract the worship service because God is a God of order, not disorder. Ask them at home. So in that passage, he's not talking about a woman being able to teach. He's simply correcting the disorder in the church. That's all. But here's the, the, the transcultural principle for us today. It goes like this up on the screen. Gifted women are welcome to pray and teach in the church setting, but also under authority. Okay, and this is where, like, we just submit to what the Bible says, that God is a God of order, and there is a certain beauty to a well-ordered church service, is there not? And there's a certain beauty to a well-ordered, well-organized church, right? And so what God has instituted is a group of select men who are above reproach spiritually and morally would be responsible for guarding the church, and they'd be called elders. And within that elder team would be perhaps a lead pastor, a lead teacher who would have a level of authority with the teaching in the church. And God has ordained that those two offices, so to speak, would be led and held by men. But under that, that does not mean that a gifted woman is not welcome to pray or to prophesy, to teach or to administrate. Indeed, we'd want women to use all the different gifts that God has given them, just as we want men to use all the different gifts that God has given them under the proper authority of the elders and the lead pastors, which, by the way, is exactly what we do here. Okay? Because here's the deal. To achieve the Great Commission... It's going to take all of us. We don't need 50% of us to achieve the Great Commission. We don't need a few select missionaries and pastors to achieve the Great Commission. We need all of us to achieve the Great Commission. And so God equips us and he gifts us and he'd want us to be trained such that the gospel would never be hindered and the last thing I'd ever want to do is hinder someone from using their God-given gifts to teach and to preach and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. Amen. 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 I hope you say amen to that because we want to see it go out. And by the way, if you want to hear more about this, I did a teaching on this a couple months ago called Gospel and Women in Ministry Leadership. You can find it online. 
but, uh, but we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> All right. Did you know that our culture also includes like some time-bound restrictions and rules and regulations that are not timeless? Did you know that? It's good to think about like what are time-based restrictions that we have in our own culture that are not actually biblical restrictions. You see one hinted at here. Let me unpack it. 21st century time-bound principle or restriction would be something like this. In the 21st century, in the West, in America specifically, and in Western Europe, we've been taught that any idea of headship is equal to superiority and inferiority. That's what we've been taught in the West for the past 50 years. And so in verse 3, well, when Paul says this, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the, head of every Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Like, if you say that in 2023 United States, you are going to be voted off the island, aren't you? Like, that is not allowed in our culture anymore. Headship in the West now refers to superiority and inferiority, and so we're told by culture that it must be completely done away with. Now, it's worth noting that around the world, that's a minority view even today. Around the world, most cultures still value a proper sense of headship and loving authority, and across most of history until the past 50 years, we in the West did as well. But today, we are told that if one person is the head, then the other person must be inferior. And that's simply not what the Bible says. In fact, what the Bible says is that any headship is tied to these two things. Number one, the order of creation. Adam was created first and then Eve. And then number two, and more importantly, headship in terms of being the lead servant. So husbands, if you are called to be the head of your home, it's, it's simply this. You are called to be the lead servant in your home. This is the timeless biblical principle that we would gain. A husband's headship makes him the lead servant. So men and women are equally made in the image and likeness of God, equally created by God. Men and women are equally redeemed by God. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. It says Galatians 3, we are all one in Jesus Christ. There's total equality there. But God has instituted that the man would be like a loving, respectful head in the home. And that's kind of hard for some to stomach. I like the way Maria puts it as she tells her daughter in the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, as she's preparing to get married. She says, Maria, if the man is the head, just remember the woman is the neck. <laughs> Y'all are slow today. Take your time. <laughs> okay, so like, I'll give you a nuanced truth well, when it comes to this teaching. Headship and equality can coexist. And they must. They must. Okay? On the right, they would say they can't. On the left, they would say they can't. Biblically, we say they must. They must coexist. And the primary thing about headship is this, men. You ready? This is the primary number one thing about headship. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's it. It all falls from that. 
As Christ gave himself up for the church, so also you would sacrificially love your wife and willingly give yourself up for her. You would sacrifice for her so much that she would feel like she's first. You would sacrifice for her in such a way that she would flourish into the beautiful flower that God intends her to be. And headship includes this reality that we mutually submit to one another, as Galatians 5.21 puts it, And sometimes we come to difficult decisions that have to be made inside of the home and we pray together and we listen to each other and we each have equal votes in the decision and there's a back and forth and sometimes in the home the male will lead in some areas and the woman will lead in other areas and if we tell men that they have to lead all the time they will be exhausted. Okay? So there's a mutual leadership even there though that happens but there are occasional times that as the husband leads and he's honoring his wife as Christ honors the church, there might occasionally be times that a difficult decision has to be made. And the husband would say, let's pray about it. Let's talk about it some more. Let's talk to other people about it. Let's pray about it some more. And every once in a while, a decision still has to be made and the husband says, God has given me the weight of responsibility, not the privilege, the weight of responsibility to make that very difficult decision, not for my own benefit, but for the benefit of her and for the family, not out of power or authority or any kind of power grab whatsoever, but out of love. Out of love. That's what we're invited to. And it's a countercultural truth on both sides. And frankly, like, it's, it's really not all that surprising because last time I checked, no business can run well if there's not clear leadership, right? Every good business has a clear leader and there needs to be respect for good authority. Last time I checked, like, there's no teams that are coached by two people simultaneously. A team has a coach and a good coach listens to the assistants, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm mean, far more than that. Those are... Um, weak examples in the family. It's like we are equals. And even as we are equals, there's this heavy responsibility that a, a good man would hold on to and say, how do I sacrifice for my wife? And sometimes I'll have to make a very, very difficult decision. And none of this means superiority or inferiority any more than it implies superiority of the Father over the Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus says... I only say the words the Father gives me to say. I only do what the Father gives me to do. And yet at the same time, Jesus also says, I and the Father are one. You see? It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal dance, this oneness, even as the the Son and the Spirit submit to to the Father. And so also, but between husband and wife and, and marriage and well within the church, occasionally, though, there would be acts of submission. But submission, though it's such a bad word culturally, it's not a bad word biblically. Submission is what we do for one another all the time. Okay, like we just act out of love for each other and say, how can I look out for your interest over my own interest? And when men do that, I dare say their wives will follow. The problem is most men don't do it. Maybe we would be the kind of men in this church who would. Let's close out well with this word from Philippians 2, which is for all of us, irrespective of gender. Here's the way Paul puts it. He says, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. But in humility, look out for others before yourself. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Indeed, our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to hold on to, but instead he made himself nothing. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and he took on the nature of a servant to serve you for life and for eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We admit that sometimes it's kind of hard to understand, but we're thankful, God, that your word is true and it's eternal and that you give us this opportunity to keep learning the Bible. Like the Bible is living and active and it's In one sense, it's like shallow enough for a toddler to walk into and enjoy and to learn the basic gospel truths, but in another sense, it's it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And uh, the Bible is deep enough for us to keep on learning across the entirety of our lives. And we just acknowledge that we don't understand it at all, but we want to submit to it. And I still have lots of questions about this passage, and maybe one day you'll prove me wrong about some of my convictions today. And that's okay. But I thank you, Lord, that we are under the authority of the Scriptures and the Son of God who loves us and gave his life for us. And so, Father, may we be the kind of church that loves each other so much that we would submit to one another, that we would build each other up in love, that we would look out not for our own interests, but we would look out for your glory and the interests of one another. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray together.